There we go. Sorry, somehow I missed that. I apologize. Uh, it's okay, Luke. I forgive you. Sister Miriam, on the other hand, doesn't know the <laughs> meaning of forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I've never heard of it. Like, what is that? Again? And so. she never forgets. <laughs> No, that was an awesome gun, Luke. That was an awesome gun. <laughs> That's exactly oh, what it was. Then I realized I just made, I just uh, that, that we have a nun, and I felt terrible. You just turned a, <laughs> oh. you just turned a nun into uh, Sylvester Stallone in a cheesy exactly. '80s action movie, which will be a repeating theme as long as I'm here. <laughs> All nuns are Sylvester Stallone in the eyes of Luke Gregory Carey. I mean, a guy I know who works in Cincinnati. <laughs> Hi, sister. Thank you Hi, so much for, for being here. I'm thrilled to have you on here. I'm so sorry that I'm late. I feel so ashamed. I'll get over it. I cried a little bit, but I was she like, did. whatever it is. Literally, the That's first fair. 10 minutes, she was just... After I got back to the club, that is so, you know. <laughs> Had to go back to the club. <laughs> you mean I left the club early and Luke's not even here? <laughs> no, I was like clubbing and stuff and whatever. I was like, dude, I have to go home. <laughs> My favorite DJ was starting spinning. At 11 o'clock. <laughs> the fog was getting super intense and it was about to drop. <laughs> like later, people. Later. Mm, mm. So, how are things? Well, we were just talking about formation until you interrupted us. <gasps> Ooh, yeah. perfect. Go on. No. He was about to be formed. Gummer was about to have a formation. Moment. And then yes. and it ended. So it's over now. And then, Luke, ruined you're it. ruining it. Mm. <laughs> Sister, are you doing any of the encounter encounter conferences at all? No, encounter I'm not doing any of those. Did I? I already asked you that question. I think I did. Yeah, yeah that's okay. No. Yeah, I just couldn't do it this year. So, uh, you know. Darn shame. Do you Which, ever. You, oh, sorry. Go are ahead. You gonna, are you going to be in Houston or something for that? Yeah, mm-hmm. Luke is coming down tomorrow for Encounter Houston. Uh, what? What? That's exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to do. Um, uh, we're going to be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Sunday, I have to leave extra early in the morning and teach an RCIA class. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Very excited <laughs> about that. Leaving really early and doing that. Very excited. I bet it's going to rock. I heard last year the Houston one was amazing. It was. It was. I actually got to speak at that one, and I'm the reason why everyone said it was amazing. So Pretty much. I didn't want to brag on you, but there you go. Uh, no, please do. Please do. I have no <laughs> self-esteem. It, <laughs> hinges on the affirmation of anyone at any given moment. So this is less about us interviewing you and more about you affirming us. This is <laughs> oh, this is what we're doing. Okay, yeah. I can do that. <laughs> I know you can. You're, you're very loving. That's why we invited you on. You're very affirming. After Luke, oh. um, uh, my favorite thing though was episode, after episode um, 107, fear dating and using other people. Uh, sister, you immediately sent us a text message where you're like, I just want to give Luke a hug. I did. Luke, please tell me that he forwarded that to you. I wasn't going to be a creepy stalker. No, no, it was great. I was, uh, driving to, um, I was driving out to Rockford when I got it and it made my day. So thank you. You guys just pierced my heart. Like I just was sitting on an airplane listening. I had downloaded it before. I'm like, oh, this will be interesting. And I just was just transfixed by it. And I was so just humbled by your humility and just the words that you were saying are words that people don't usually say in like vulnerability. And I was just really, I just felt very reverent of you, Luke, especially. It was just really beautiful. I just want to say that it was just really like a a sacred moment. Like you were sharing from these depths of your own brokenness and um, it was really powerful. So. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's um, it was emotionally exhausting doing that. I'll be very blunt. 
like I, I couldn't fall asleep. And I remember uh, like when I was trying to just staring at my wife, just like being overwhelmed with love for her mm. and just like kind of, it was very cathartic to get that out. Cause I really hadn't, I've, I've told that to people in bits and in bits and pieces, but I've never really sat down and just like said, here it all is everyone enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, and it's been kind of cool because people are starting to reach out to me and the guys who felt uh, not like quite the same, but pretty similar to what I was expressing. And it, um, it's kind of interesting because I don't think I can, like at, at times I'm always like a little bit worried about the podcast being us, like putting our hearts on our sleeve too much yeah. to where it's, you know, becomes like voyeuristic and just, yeah. and not mm-hmm. healthy for us. And that was one where I was a little bit, cause I was so, I knew it was good because of how much it just impacted, even just how I saw my wife in that as I was trying oh. to fall asleep, you know, it's, like, mm-hmm. it's weird when something like when it, I think when something enhances your vocation, that's a sign that it's bearing fruit. Oh, amen. You know? Yeah. Amen. So- so I'm pretty good, is what is what I'm saying. Here. <laughs> uh, Meanwhile, my wife still doesn't listen. I've begged her. I've bribed her. Nothing. Well, no, it was really interesting. So I was I um, have a new baby niece who was born mm-hmm. a week ago. Yeah. Yay! And I was hanging out, so I went to I went uh, out um, up to Phoenix to. I actually I'm surprised Emily, who's been on our podcast in the past, she's one that um, had that had the baby. And uh, I was talking, I was with my mom and my and aunt D outside of the hospital, and I was like, so um, don't listen to the most recent episode. <laughs> and my mom was yeah. like, I did, and it broke my heart. And I was like, oh, that oh. I felt bad. I was like, don't worry, mom, I'm fine. I promise. She goes, I didn't know you were going through that. I was like, well, it wasn't all the time, but. Yeah. But it was often um, enough that you should have seen the warning signs. Oh. <laughs> like, have you guys ever had anything? Because like you guys both speak. I'm not a speaker uh, yet, um, <laughs> which is weird that it's kind of happening and I feel weird. Um, do you guys have you guys ever like given a talk where you were just like, I wonder what happens when like my mom hears this or something? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Your, are you are you close with your parents, sister? Um, my, my father's deceased. He died okay. 16 years ago, but yes, my mom and I are very close. And so like when I wrote that book, when I wrote a book a couple of years ago, my mom and I've had many conversations, but there were just things that I wrote in the book that, you know, she, she needed to know that before it happened, you know, and just out of respect for her. And, uh, yeah, it's always a risk. I think, you know, vulnerability is a great tool. I mean, not anyone want to use that word. It's not a tool. It's a door to intimacy. And it requires a lot of discernment and it requires a great gift of yourself and your own healing, I think, to be authentically vulnerable. But it's true. It really does. Like you set your, it's like you set your armor down before the world and you say, here I am. And come what may, right? And that's a great risk. Yeah. It's a great risk. Yeah. I, 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 uh... How about you, Gilmer? I, um, so I give talks... A long time ago, I realized that if I'm going to communicate effectively, I have to communicate from my life. There is a period mm-hmm. where some of the speakers that mentored me or that I looked up to, I realized that they were using bits like a comedian and they were mm-hmm. made up, but they were useful for illustrating a point, but they would involve their family in these made up stories. And the way I found out was I heard two different speakers reference the exact same story 
And then I saw it on YouTube like a week later. And I was like, what the heck? And it was interesting. A, and yeah, so it was like this funny story about my kids, blah, 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 and a Pez dispenser. And they use it to talk about their, how they pray in the relation to God. And it's a great analogy, but I, when um, I, I had taken a group of teens and they heard both talks, they were literally two days apart. One was at a Steubenville Youth Conference and the other one was at a, a, a Life Teen Leadership Training Conference. Mm. There were two different speakers. They didn't know that. They, I mean, they had shared the, the Protestant Evangelist video together and they were both like, I'm going to use that. But they both said it was my kids. So as soon as my group put two and two together, they're like, they're lying to me. None of this is oh, true. Oh, gosh. None of this oh, is true. God. And they're, they're just straight up lying. And now I've exaggerated, you know, in order to emphasize a point sure. or whatever, you know, to make something more clear than maybe like what really happened. But the, that had a profound effect on me. And I realized that mm-hmm. if I'm going to connect with my audience I'm I'm not a comedian doing a bit. That's where the listening mm-hmm. to comedians falls short. I have to actually speak the truth about where I'm coming from. Now, I mm-hmm. I do use anonymity. You know, sometimes I'll say like a friend of mine when I mean me. You know, and referencing like stuff growing up and your baggage growing up and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know for a fact that if my mom were to listen to some of my talks, she would probably uh, smack me in the mouth the next time I went over to her house. <laughs> Because that's still a thing we do in the Gormley house. <laughs> Listen, you can take the mom out of Philly, but you can't take the Philly out of the mom. <laughs> Michael! Michael! Running your mouth about my family business crack! Go and, go and run the, the library stairs! <laughs> and then the Rocky theme music would be playing. Nice. Every time I go to Philadelphia, we go see the Rocky statue. Every Damn. single time. Run the museum really? steps oh, every time. I would love to see that. Mm-hmm. I just really like I like all the Rocky films except for Rocky Five. Yeah, Tommy Machine Gun from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yay! And that's the only good part of the whole movie. Anywho, sister, how are things? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've seen Rocky Five. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. On you're, that one. you're not missing anything. Okay. No, now you're like, dead. Those to are me. moments you're you'll never get back anyway. So okay. <laughs> so okay, I kind of have a left field question. Unless we want to like keep talking about the talk thing, and, and if so, that's fine. So if this is a if this is a dumb question. Go ahead and say, it. Luke, you failed us all. Um, you used to be an athlete, sister. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Or like you were a collegiate athlete, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Do you think we have made an idol out of a professional sports or even collegiate sports? Oh, definitely. I was just talking about that today to somebody, as a matter of fact. Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy. To, it's become a God that we worship. And uh, I love sports. I, to this day, I, I love them. I love sports. But it's so easy to worship. And it, you've seen it take over all kinds of areas of our life. And it starts very young now. It makes me sad. You know, you see little kids who already have to be in club sports when they're, you know, tiny. And it's like this whole machine, like this money machine mm-hmm. of, of sports and just all that it comes with it. And yeah, I, for me, it's, it's, uh, it's way over the top. And I think, you know, when you worship something like that, it just really distorts it and distorts the people that do it. So yeah, it makes me sad sometimes. Like I tend to wonder, so I was, uh, talking to a guy at the convocation who used to do some of the social media for Cristiano, um, 
Ronaldo, and we were just really? talking wow. about it. Yeah, it was really I'm a fascinating, and I'm a mm-hmm. huge soccer fan, like huge. Mm-hmm. It's kind of I'm a slightly obsessed. And he brought up this point where he's like, you know, here's a guy who's basically stolen, not stolen, but taken from his home at an incredibly young age and just put into this machine to be. And he basically was saying, like, this guy, you know, he had never, like, met him, but that he was just so, like, he did, like, how he was basically saying how Ronaldo is kind of detached from any sort of, like, reality. Mm. And it, and he's, and he said how he felt bad for him, and it kind of hit me like, how Spartanesque is that? That we take these young kids, especially in Europe, when it comes to soccer, and at very young ages, put them in these academies where their whole purpose is just to be the best professional athlete they can be. Mm. And when you think about what, as Americans, we do with club sports, or because like now it's not even about three sports; it's about one sport. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Long. I'm like, how Spartan-esque is that? You know, like how different are we from the Spartans? But just pulling kids from their homes, plugging them to this thing where they're detached from all of their families. And I, I, I'm starting to wonder, like, where do we where do we draw the line? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, because I love sports. Like, I love I'm so pumped for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. But when it's in Qatar in 2022, I don't know if it's morally acceptable to watch it. I really don't. Oh, interesting. I didn't think of that. We used to, uh, humanity used to watch other people kill each other for the sake of sport. Now they they die so that we can watch sports, right? Like the whole Qatar, all these people mm-hmm. dying, building the buildings and Gosh, the fields. Yeah. And, like it's like atrocious, but it's like, but the, but the game must go on, ladies and gentlemen. The contracts yeah. have been signed, right? It's mm-hmm. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. And we all know how I feel about sports ball. (laughs) (laughs) You should feel ashamed. Um, I do. No, and it's just, I I mean, again, this is kind of like left field thing, so you don't have to mind this too much. But I just, I'm always curious to ask people who, you know, like were athletes or did it at some type of an an intense level what their thoughts are. Because I think this is a conversation we need to have. Yeah. Like a, a continual one. I agree with you. I, I agree with you. It's taken over so many things and it's like a whole mindset of even parents feel like I was giving a talk one time on the theology of sports and we were talking about parents and, you know, parents feel like they don't even have a say now. The coach says, we're going to have a practice on Sunday morning and your kid's going to be there. And they don't even feel like they have a right to say, no, we're going to church because the coach, you know, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's like yeah. crazy. It's like parent families don't have dinner together anymore. And it's all about, you know, it's, I think you really have to be discerning of a balanced life because that's just, uh, yeah, it's very easy to to just kind of let that go and get it out of control. And and even just I just physically, when I coached volleyball in high school, I coached at a, a high school in Seattle, and I would see that some of those girls, because they're all in club and they've been playing for years and years and years, they were having some of the same injuries that I had 20 years ago in college oh, because wow. their bodies can't take that kind of pounding year after year after year with the shoulders and the knees. And so it's like, what are we doing to our kids for, and, and for what was it like statistically like 1% of all high school athletes play college and then 1% of that 1% go pro, you know, yep. it's yep. just like, Oh man, I don't even know. It's crazy. And I think it sucks the joy out of kids' lives too. You know, I was talking to someone about specifically about how adults have managed to ruin children's lives earlier and <laughs> earlier by imposing the world of work upon them. So yeah. now, I mean, like peewee football is gets you so amped up. You got, you know, dads are getting ejected from the game 
because they're screaming and yelling and fist fights are breaking out. And obviously that's not every game. I'm not saying that, but like it should that be the, the game you were at. Going, it was so. man. Cause I was all thumbs. I didn't know what I was doing. My dad's like, I'm going to punch you if you don't run the right direction. I'm like, give me this one. And my dad's like, get over here, you. He wasn't punching other dads. He was punching You're destroying me. destroying my, my dreams, boy. Destroying <laughs> my dreams. And then I looked at my dad and said, Dad, I don't want your laugh. <laughs> and it, it was sounds awesome. like a Hallmark, like a Hallmark movie or something. Oh, does it? Or does it's it sound like a movie life. made by MTV? <laughs> I was just about to say that. Because that's what it was. I don't want your laugh. Um, <laughs> any, anywho. Anywho. Getting it back to sanity. But, um. <laughs> One of the things that, uh, that I see is the world of work constantly imposing its way down. Like, uh, oh, that's true. Like, I don't know what practice was like for you when you were in college, but I remember talking to a woman who, who had a full scholarship to volleyball, you know, to play volleyball in a state school, and she would talk about, you know, volleyball seasons like what? It was like November to January, whatever it was. And she's like, we start practice the month before. And mm-hmm. she said, now I go to middle schools and high schools and they're starting they have year-round practice and when they're Mm -hmm. not actually practicing the sport together like on the team they're required to be in track or in the weight room or on swim team Mm -hmm. you know like they're required to do to be year-round athletes like a job a year-round athletes so that they can play volleyball for you know two three months for the season or whatever and this never happened. And you had people who were like, I was a normal college student, except for X amount of weeks out of the year. I had to go to sometimes two a days, most of the time just one extra practice a day. And that was it. And then a game, you know, you travel for games. But now it is. It's, oh, it's all, year round. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's year round. It's year you got life. Clubs, yeah. you got, you know, all sorts of stuff that evolve to keep kids constantly in the job of playing sports. And, and what do we say? Oh, it builds character. Not when it's your job. Mm. Not when it's not when it's like that. Listen, I work. I have a job. I have no character building in my job. It is destroying my soul. Okay, put me back on that soccer team when I was eight. That's where I grew. <laughs> so, I mean, would you even like recommend if if you had a so if like one uh, if um one of your volleyball uh, players were to ask you, should I play? in college like what would your answer be to that i think that i mean it was college was a great experience and i think mm-hmm. especially i mean you can't deny the I mean, for me the financial reality is having a full scholarship so i graduated oh, yeah. you know debt free and that was a huge deal i think obviously i would navigate it very differently as an adult now than versus i was but i would say you have to go in with your eyes open I, for me the number one thing is you need to know that it's a business Mm-hmm. college athletics it's not for fun it's a business and they're put, they're investing money in you and they want a return on their investment so you have to know that they're going to tell you that school is number one but it's 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 really not because you're all about being you're academically eligible but you're there to play sports and so i, I don't even know how people like major pre-med or pre-law or anything because you miss a lot of school and you have all of your classes are arranged around your practices mm. so i mean i'm sure you can but but you, I just think you have to be really smart about it. And, you know, there's a whole kind of scene that goes along with at the athletic crowd. But, yeah, it's just very easy to go to your identity of this is who I am versus like, no, this is something that I do. This is not at the heart of who I am. Um, but really, I mean, for me, it was a great experience, too. I got to see a lot of cool places and got to play some great volleyball against some great teams. And uh, I mean, I ended up having knee surgery as well. But, um, you know. But yeah, it was a good experience. But I, I, it's certainly a business, it's, and that was a rude awakening for me coming from a small town. So that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, 
uh, so Aaron, um, that is that is my wife. She, uh, how do I put this? Kind of used to be a nun. Okay. <laughs> so she was a novice, I think. Okay. With yeah. The, novice. It was a novice. The Carmelites. Yeah. <laughs> she was a novice with the Carmelites. Um, <laughs> with the Carmelites out in L.A. And she was telling me the story about didn't how for take, her she, didn't take at all. Yeah. Um, she was saying how like she like was. And like after like a couple of months of being in there, how incredible it was just to get a Diet Coke. And how she was like, <laughs> it was just so great to have a Diet Coke. And it and it kind of made me think like, man, I wish I, I had that about a Diet Coke. And like when I think back to like sports, <laughs> with how in like how much we like watch it and how involved we are, where it just like it doesn't have the appeal that it once had because it's because it's basically disordered. And if we cut back yeah. on it, we're actually going to enjoy it more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's all I want to say. About I it. mean, if you look at ESPN and Fox Sports and all that, it is an entire culture set up for, like I think of my brother Brian, who's an awesome dude, but he's a sports nut. Uh, before they cut the cord cable and all that stuff back, he, I mean, ESPN would be on like EWTN was on for my mom, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like, listen, you have to leave it on because it keeps the demons away from that living room, right? My brother, I'm sure, was like, it keeps that quitter attitude away from the living room, right? You're like... It's con- it, you know what I mean? Like it's that whole culture of, and uh, and now because of the internet, you have the the growth of the fantasy football like whole industry around yes, it. You that know. you know, fantasy sports. Crazy. Yeah, it is. I think it. I think it's insane. Number one, as someone who has played fantasy football twice and never changed my team after week one. When did you play? Oh, I got conned into it. I just gave people. <laughs> I just gave people money. Is really what that was about. But uh, this this whole notion of um, of the of the industry that surrounds it, make sure that it's not just the athletes that are twenty four seven. It's us, you know. Like, it's hey, so did you love watching your team play on Sunday for four hours? Play an hour and a half game for four hours? Well, guess what? Mm-hmm. Let's watch every single down from the twenty <laughs> yard line to the or from uh, you know twenty <laughs> yards out to the goal. Like, we're gonna watch it in the red zone, and it's like all of these things. That, hey, guess what? ESPN just launched a vintage sports channel. And by vintage, we mean the 80s and 90s, you know? (laughs) And it's like, and you can literally go, not just from game to game that's being played now, but it's just constant, constant commentary. And it's, it's like a, it's a self-sustaining nothing. Like, if you didn't talk about, I tell this to people all the time, they're like, how come you're not into sports? And I was like, because if I miss my team's game, unless it was one of those, like, you know, epic once a year, once every 10 year games. Like, you know, the immaculate reception happens or something like that. I'm not going to care. No one's going to care. No one mm-hmm. is going – like, you'll care for that moment, and you'll get mm-hmm. your, your cortisol levels up, and then you walk away. It doesn't change your life. You didn't play. Get it's over so it. You know? Does it, though? Because when the Bengals lost to the Steelers in 2016, <laughs> I was dead inside for a good week. <laughs> a week? A week? <laughs> More like a month. It was pretty crazy. <laughs> Oh, the Bengals. No, I know. And I wonder sometimes if it's, I think, I don't know, especially for men, like the, the, this pursuit of sports, you know, I, I wonder if it's like also a pursuit of adventure, you know, oh, and yeah. it's like so easy to get like sucked into somebody else's life when we don't feel like we have an adventure or like a purpose or like a mission in our own life. Yeah. And I don't know. Like, I wonder if there's something about that, like something about masculinity and just kind of where society is going and the call of men, the, the call that God has placed on men and like that whole kind of substitute of, of watching somebody else fight a battle versus like fighting a battle yourself. You know what I mean? I, I, I would agree with that. 
And one thing that I would add to that also, and I don't know if this is a bad thing, but I think it can become bad, obviously, is there's it really does provide a cool sense of community. Mm -hmm. So it's like I love being at a bar with a bunch of people to watch a game. It's Mm -hmm. so much fun. Like it's just which is awesome. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah. Yeah. And then but it's when that becomes like every week or I'm ignoring my kids or I haven't prayed or my job or these other things, which like can be super tempting. Um, it becomes a little bit messed up or, or when I really truly like it, when it destroys like my life or it changed, I don't know. Or, or, or how about this? Or I'm watching a game being played in a stadium that was funded by taxpayers and solely for the benefit (laughs) of millionaires and billionaires, you know, that, that only actually produces profit for a city sector during the season and afterwards produces a profound amount of poverty and crime and violence. Yay! But but other than that, I'm sure it's fine. Other than that, it's to- other than that, it's totes cool. Totes cool. But if that means that the Bengals are going to win the Super Bowl, take me away, Autumn Tech Technia take me away. <laughs> <laughs> I will be as bankrupt as my corporate overlords want me to be. <laughs> Wait, how much is that jersey for sale? Fifty dollars. That's a steal. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> like two hundred bucks. <laughs> See, yeah, I just I, I, I can never. I can never get into it. And I said this before on the show, the Merlin Mann quote, this guy says to him, why don't you, like, really brass tacks, why don't you like sports? And he goes, and the guy's really funny, and he goes, oh, I don't know. I guess ever since Nuremberg, whenever 40,000 people are in a stadium chanting the same thing, I get really nervous. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, that's scary. Good point, good point. On that note, the United States men's teams plays Panama on Friday night to get into the World Cup and look for a podcast for me about that sometime next next week. <laughs> Anyways, how are you, sister? <laughs> uh, you can get like the play by play next week of that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So how's your how's your feminine genius doing? <laughs> Is it doing well? Is it doing well, sister? Last time I checked. I, I think I think it's still being formed. Uh, I hope so. Right? What, what so. is what is the feminine genius? What is it? Because <laughs> I hear women, I literally walked into a Catholic school, all-girls Catholic school. It was written on the, as soon as you walk in, uh, in this, something like, in this house, we foster the feminine genius. And I was like, heck yeah, JP2, what does that mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, 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 I tell myself I'm going to read Mulieri's Dignitatum, but, you know, just haven't gotten around to it. I'm sure you have other things to read. Just Crusade Fidei's Leiji, that's it. Over and over again. I think for me, really, what from what I understand, like the synthesis of, of the feminine genius is really the attentiveness to the human person, the attentiveness to the other. And it's etched in a woman's soul. It's etched in her body and her ability to see the other and love the other and receive the other and nurture the other. Mm. Um, and that's where her heart goes. And that's where her her nurturing spirit goes, where she's a life bearer. She's a warrior. And so, like, that's a particular genius that women have, the ability to intuit and also intellectually perceive as well the goodness of the other. And it makes the world more human, right? And her heart does. She makes the world more humane in who she is and her very essence. So I think, for me, if you kind of synthesize that, that's what I would say the feminine genius is. There is a, um, a quote that I heard from someone who said, um, when you remove the feminine from the center of public life, uh, you, you lose humanity or the humaneness mm-hmm. of it, right? And so it becomes mm-hmm. – so all those societies that minimize women's roles are all um, the, the violent and the – even towards one another, right? Not even yes. to external threats. And it is interesting, especially with um, third-wave feminism, you know, they um, 
feminist philosophers who write on like medical ethics, they will almost all tend to focus on what they call an ethic of care. And I think, Interesting. and I think like a masculine uh, approach to it would be uh, fixing as opposed to caring. Right. Mm. And, I, and I think, and they, mm. they, I mean, they both want the same resolution, right? Health, mm-hmm. wholeness, but the man, uh, you know, written in his sexuality, it's, it's an external, it's a thing external from him where he wants, he wants to make it right by doing something in the world. Whereas care is more of an, an empathic response that, that wants to bring healing and peace to that person. And, uh, you know, it's like two different approaches, but you know, they might end up in the same goal, not to say that, you know, one's better than the other, but the, there mm-hmm. is this, what they call a feminist ethics of care that I think kind of sounded off what you said. That's very interesting. Yeah, I know. I think there's obviously there's a complementarity to the two. And and I love that, you know, John Paul II was saying that, you know, if it's, as a woman, go into any aspect of public life you want to go into, but go into it as a woman, not as a man. And so, you know, there's such a, a loss, I think, of the feminine genius, but also the masculine genius as well. And that's really, I think, the rebirth of, of, of the authentic Christian life is, is the reception of what God has blessed us with as men and women. And that gift that we have to give to one another that com- completes one another, that complements one another, that's so just so epically needed right now for men and women to rise and give the gift of themselves and in, in all of its fullness. I, so amen. I think it has to go together because they're both valuable, you know. Yeah, I, I find right now, Luke had said this. Uh, about three weeks ago or three episodes ago. And Luke, I have to say, it's one of those things that I hate that you do, but you are 100% right. Ugh, it's, uh, <laughs> go on. Uh, it's where you said the ma- majority of time where we're you know giving talks or whatever, retreats, we need to focus on healing. And uh, you made this comment about healing, how that needs to become central in what we do. And, you know, I speak with people all the time um, who are struggling with, uh, family issues, um, you know, ex-lover issues, you know, now that I work with adults and not teens, like there's so much more hurt and baggage and, and the wounds go much deeper when they're in college and, and, and uh, young adults and stuff. And, you know, they move in with someone and then that person cheats on them and disappears or whatever. Um, but then you have the, the kind of the, the hurt that comes with married couples where there's infertility issues mm. And the, the thing that's so hard with, I think, with infertility issues especially is we keep using the God language in a way that we don't for a lot of other stuff. Like we say, like, hey, you know, if, I, if I'm going to have more kids, I'm going to have more kids if the Lord wills it. And then, <laughs> and then so someone who can't have kids is like, is God actively closing my womb? Like, oh, you know, oh. and, and so there's that mm-hmm. struggle there um, mm-hmm. constantly kind of going back and forth with this. So what um, and I know healing is a big part of your ministry. Um, how do you, how do you incorporate that? Number one in your own life and number two in your, in your ministry. Well, Pope Benedict says in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, he said, when understood at a sufficiently deep level, healing encompasses the entire mission of Jesus Christ. Like it's the whole receptivity. It's the whole integration of the human person, because that's what Jesus comes to do. Where we're fractured. He comes to make us whole. So our lives are not lived intellectually over here and psychologically over here and spiritually over here. They're lived as a whole. So that's, you know, that's why he came, right, to save us from our sin, to heal us and all of our areas of brokenness. So, yes, that's I'm sure you've you've heard me talk about that. That's I that is one of my main messages of of Jesus Christ coming to heal the depths of, of who we are. And I think that's why I was so impacted by your podcast a few days ago or a few weeks ago about healing and brokenness and honesty. And it's in those very places, I think, where we're fractured, where we come to the truth of what is, 
where we invite Jesus in there, where we can repent and we can forgive and we can receive healing from our shame. And it's just, yes, I, that is something that goes so deeply in my heart of not only that Jesus is, is healing for me in my life every day as his bride, but also that it's poured out into the world that his beauty shines, you know? How do you walk people through healing? Um, like, do you, do you help people by just, I mean, do you do more like, you know, you have like charismatic prayer, you mm-hmm. know, for certain people uh, or certain sessions or whatever. I've done, I've participated in stuff like that. How do you actually implement it in, you know, what you're doing? Um, I do pray with people. Yes, I do believe in that. I do believe in the charismatic gifts of, of both spiritual and physical and emotional healing. I believe in all of that. Um, praying with people, asking the Lord to to reveal where he is. Um, I mean, I'm not a counselor by any means, but I do accompany people on the journey of listening to their, their story and, and hearing where God is speaking to them and where they're broken and where they're hurting and um, really just being like a person to them. I, I love to recommend books. I have recommend counselors. I mean, I, you know, in my own life, like honestly, my motto in life is go big or go home. Right. <laughs> so, and I've had an incredibly broken past and, and I just believe like God gives us so much at our disposal and I'm like, man, bring it on. So I yeah. always have a list of just things, areas for growth of help and, and healing. And I, I, yeah, I'm like, man, go for it. It's worth it. Recovery is really hard, but it's worth it. It is worth every second of it. What do you mean by like, you've had an incredibly broken past? Like, is this high school time for you? Cause you, you entered uh, the religious life right after college, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually, you know, by the time I was 21, I was already an alcoholic by the time I was 21. And so I'd been drinking since I was 12. And, um, I was, when I was 11 years old, I was sexually abused and I was raped when I was 13 Oh my dear. and my life shattered. I was very promiscuous and very broken and a lot of shame, a lot of clinical depression, a lot of self-hatred and just thought I was so ugly. I just, my life was in such, so much shame. And I had like these two competing narratives of my life of, you know, um, if I'm just pretty enough and funny enough and skinny enough and good enough at volleyball, that's one thing. But then this whole other area of my life that was shrouded in secret because I hadn't told anybody any of that. And there's a saying in the 12 step program that we're only as sick as our secrets. And so I, um, yeah, I was incredibly broken. And so for me, God has sent people into my life over the years of a long road of recovery and sobriety and healing and just love. And to remind me of who I am, that at the heart of it, I'm not my sin. It was not my addiction. I'm not these broken parts of me that just hide out. I'm at my core. I'm the daughter of God and he loves me. And that reality of just this inner healing, what continues in my life in different layers, even now to this very moment, as I speak to you, you know, Jesus is always revealing these layers of, of areas he wants to free me. Um, it's an ongoing journey. And that's really, honestly, I think that's the process of holiness. That's what wholeness it's, it's integration of the human person. And so I'm not hiding. I'm not, having facades. I'm not trying to come off as something that I'm not. I can be little and just be open and and receptive to his grace. So yeah, it's a long journey, I think. And I I know it'll last forever. So (laughs) yeah, no kidding. What, I mean, do you find, you know, one word that we constantly hear today, especially in like feminist circles, right. Is the word shame, right. Mm. You know, you're shaming me, slut shaming, fat shaming, like all this different shaming exists. Um, how, what is the role of shame in, or the role of healing in dealing with the shame? Because you committed, and this is a constant obstacle I see with people, they mm-hmm. committed no sin, you know, when someone abused them and yeah. and wounded them. It wasn't a sin, but they 
internalize it as if it was a sin that they committed. Like, you know, this one abused woman said to me one time, it broke my heart, like, well, I shouldn't have said the things I said that led him to hit me. I and know. it's like, no, he should never have hit you in any possible world, you know? But that yeah. there's this shame of people finding out. There's a shame mm-hmm. of, I don't know, what, what do you think the relationship between shame and healing is? Well, what shame says, shame says I am unlovable and there's something inherently wrong with me. And this, that's, the, that's the, one of the most insidious things I think about abuse is that it's the victim that takes on the sorrow versus, in a sense, like an opposite oh. of the perpetrator. And so yeah. you, you blame yourself and you say to yourself, you know, yes, like what that woman said, it was my fault or I should have um, told somebody or why didn't I, why didn't I say no or why? And it's this, it just, it just seeps into the, it's like this poison that seeps into your soul. And it takes a long time to realize the truth of that. And which is very different than say something like when I, when I do something wrong, if my conscience is healthy, I'm going to feel guilt and I'm going to say, man, you know, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Right. And I can go make amends. But shame is the darkness that says I'm, I'm unlovable and nothing that I ever do will make me lovable. I'm just inherently flawed. And that's the the part where I really believe, you know, Satan camps out on our soul right there in our broken parts. And he just whispers that lie to us. And until, you know, we're um, open and receptive to where God comes to to speak the truth over the course of, of many years, right, of healing of this. One thing, I don't, I don't know if I've said this at Steubenville, but I, one thing I love about Jesus is he's so kind to us. Like he's so disarming and he's so tender and he's so kind. And just how he, he touches us and how he approaches us, he's so respectful of us as his children. And he just loves us. And, you know, when he sees our sin, he sees our pain. And he just desires to free us because he loves us. And that's the journey, I think, of wholeness and healing. When you encounter a person who has deep wounds like that, where it be mm-hmm. abuse or alcoholism, how do you accompany them in that? Um. I, uh, yeah, I, I will, I, I want, well, I want to hear their story. Like, I'm just like, tell me your story, you know? And, um, yeah, I accompany people who have different addictions too. And it's like, you know, just listening to where their heart is and just being a presence to them. Uh, I think that's what Jesus does with us. He's present, fully present to us. And you're present to them as a person, not trying to fix them, not trying to give them all the answers. Cause sometimes I don't know the answers, but I can be present to them and I can listen to the depths of their hearts to what they're saying, like their desire for love, their desire for, for truth and for healing, and also maybe their behavior that's broken and saying other things and trying just to engage them, um, you know, where they're going and what their deepest desires of their hearts are and where God is calling them. And most people know, like we know what's right and what's wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think when we're in addiction, it just, it does, it stimulates such shame. And I think I have a friend, I don't know if you guys know Father Sean Kilcally. Um, oh, I, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm he's a rock star and he just was telling me like, you know, there's like this ladder of shame that he calls. And he says, you know, at the bottom rung of the ladders, not that there's no shame, but it's like, as the ladder goes higher, the shame gets higher. And the bottom rung is like the single guy. Right. And then the, then the single woman and then the married guy, then the married woman. And then it's the priest and then it's the bishop. And then it's the sister at the top of the shame rung. And I just thought that's so interesting of how people experience, you know, shame. And just, I think, once you're married or once you, you know, just like all these areas where you say to yourself, man, I should have my life together. And I'm still so broken here. And I think encouraging people and encouraging them of who they are and reminding them of who they are and reminding them that they can get help. Like there's, cause there's a part of personal responsibility too, where you and I have to decide 
okay, man, this is where I'm going to get serious. This is where I'm going to join a 12-step meeting. This is where I'm going to put what filters on my computer. This is where I'm going to tell my story. This is where I'm going to go to counseling. And those are all things that I had to do. Like I just, at some point, I just, you, you just have to do that at some point. And, you know, so it's like that attention of, you know, walking with them and ultimately pointing them toward the one that loves them, that at the heart of who they are, they're not their addiction. They're, they're sons and daughters of God. That's beautiful. So, um, yeah, I, I I mean, it it is so awesome because, um, I I thought Luke was going to chime in there. So I was like stuttering over myself. Like, do I talk now? I don't know what to do. You guys there? Is anybody, is anyone alive out there? Hey, good talk. Anywho, back to sports. (laughs) Oh, no, but (laughs) I think, uh, in, in my ministry, the most profound moments is where, people's relationship with God, with, with God the Father in particular, and I'm sure, you know, there's so much that can be written on this, but where that is healed. Because Amen. there's so much of my own dad that I project onto God, so, so much true. of just the word Father and the, uh, you know, there's so much there that's not really there, <laughs> you know, like, it's not, that's not how God really is. And when, like, I did this mission where, because it was, I received profound healing in my life on that exact area on how I look at mm-hmm. the father. And mm-hmm. I always thought God, the father, because I knew what the natural law was because I knew what sin was. And because I was stuck in the throes of a pornography addiction, the mm-hmm. answer was, you know, like natural law plus full knowledge plus porn addiction equals God hates you. And I knew that yeah. God didn't hate me. I use the mm-hmm. phrase is disappointed in me. Yeah. And for so long, it, it, re, it resulted in one of two kind of responses, which was either I'll do the polite, what I call a polite avoider, someone who's like, you'll do the Christmas and Thanksgiving cards and the birthday cards, but that's it. It's not life-giving. It's not joyful. So it's like I do the mass attendance and I daydream the whole time on purpose. I feel mm-hmm. guilty as guilty as sin for daydreaming, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm just, I don't want to be here. And so I get yeah. my, I get the Eucharist and for appearances only, and then I leave. Well, then the other thing is the good enough, right? The good enough earner where I'm at the front row of the pew and I'm kneeling down 30 minutes before mass starts and I'm doing all the right things in the hopes that I will woo the creator to start oh, that loving. That is so true. Oh, yeah. And I, I can, I, I, so I was invited to this one parish that was an extremely liberal parish if you were over 40 years old, if you were 20 or younger or, you know, 25 or younger, you were there because that's what the focus missionaries were based out of. But if you were middle aged or older, you were there because that was the liberal Catholic parish where priests who left the priesthood in the seventies, they all attended mass there with their wives, even though they weren't mm-hmm. laicized and blah, blah, blah. So it's really mm-hmm. like interesting dynamic at this place. And when they heard that a lay person was doing a parish mission that, all these old people came because they thought, like, yeah, empower the lay people. Forget the passionists and redemptorists and doing their, you know, reserving the clergy only to do parish missions. But when I came, all I did was talk about this notion of, like, what I call Catholic guilt, right? We're taught what's a sin, what isn't a sin. But then we struggle with our sin, and we think, well, obviously God is disappointed in me. Oh, that's so true. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, and so we just spent a lot of time with that, and the priest afterwards said, because uh, they did a penance service at the end. He said, I didn't hear confessions. I heard conversions. And oh my these gosh. were from people who said, it's been 30 years since my last confession. Uh, so these are all the super old people who probably have never actually heard the gospel. Yeah. And now they're hearing the gospel of not just the Father's love, but also the, the I mean, the, I, I, I fear 
the way we minimize the impact of sin. Like there is no such thing as being able to hold on to your sinful relationships and Christ. It's so true. And yet Christ accompanies us in the transition from the one to the other. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, listen, it's all or nothing. And I want you to say all, and I'm your all, mm-hmm. but I understand that you're, you're struggling with this. Like this is, this is yeah. where the, you know, to make that fundamental break, I think is so difficult for me. It was, I mean, I was a freaking theology graduate student yeah. struggling with this stuff. I should have known better. You can say all that stuff, but I was just, I was afraid of God and I was distant from God even when I was going to daily, in fact, never more so than when I was going to daily mass. Mm. I, I had no clue mm. who my father was. At that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, I think that's so true for so many people, Michael. And I just, yes. Oh my gosh. That's probably like a whole nother show, like on so many levels and, you know, addiction has deep roots. It's not about behavior. It goes to the core of our being. Right. And it stems out of that. And it's like, that's really the cry of the heart is to be loved and to be delighted in. And yeah, and we do that. We try to perform well and we try to just get it good enough. And, and I just, yes, I love how Jesus continues just to shatter our paradigms of (laughs) God. You know, it said that our our idea of God is not too big. It's far too small. Right. And he's just so disarming. God is so disarming. He's just so captivatingly beautiful in his, his love for us. Yeah. And I think we all, I think it's very easy to sometimes confuse your, um, how do I, how do I put this to sometimes confuse encounter or the time when you had your conversion with healing. Mm-hmm. So when we just kind of go, Oh, you know what? I think that Christ, I think that he loves me. And and this is real. And I really want to dive into this and I want to change my life. I'm realizing that God does love me and sometimes forget that like, he wants to really get at like the, he wants to heal us. Of oh, yes. And you know, I just kind of re- remembering that, those two can be the same thing, but they're not always the same. I think it's very easy to forget the healing part because we tend to think of crazy preachers spouting like nonsense. It doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. which is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So, so, so um, anyways, <laughs> it's late and I was up with a bunch of people. Um, I know that I don't want to keep you too long because uh, you're on the East Coast, right, sister? Mm-hmm. I am, yeah. Do, uh, do you have to go soon? Uh, pretty soon, yeah. Okay. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been so, even though I've only been on this call for about like a half hour or so, when the talk you gave at the convocation on the main stage, like, was so, like, the Holy Spirit just like begging me to not give up on the convocation yet. So mm-hmm. thank you for what you said. It truly, like, um, it was so powerful. Like, I, it was one of those, Emmaus moments where it's like, did our heart not stir when he when he spoke to us? Mm-hmm. It was just incredible. So I just wanted um, to thank you for that while we had you here. Oh, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like the Holy Spirit did something that day, and I can't even quite articulate it. <laughs> I was like, wow, Lord, you did something that day, and it was very little and very beautiful, but he did. I feel like he was speaking to his church or something, you know? Yeah, and, and honestly, so, yeah. it was like, a, that was a really pivotal moment, I think, where not the tone of the conference changed, but I felt like it was almost like when the floodgates were opened, mm. if that makes sense, in, in like a very gentle way, because you're so nice. <laughs> <laughs> you are not a jerk. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> oh, you try, you know, it's the whole nun thing, right? But... What did you, what did you say? What, what, what happened? Cause I wasn't there cause I wasn't invited. Go on. Uh, <laughs> no, I just, they, we just talked about missionary discipleship and I just told the story of being unaccompanied really. And like what, what our heart's deepest desires are. And it was really honestly very simple. I didn't really know what even God was going to say. And just, I really believe it was the Holy Spirit just did something very beautiful too. And you could just feel his presence in the room. Like it was the, the, the presence just settled of, of God in the room. And, and yeah, it's like, I don't know, for me, I was like hungering for more of his presence. I'm like, Lord, fill us. Like fill us as a church, you know, fill us as your bride, like come sow your seed in us as your bride and, you know, set us on fire. And so, yeah, I, it was just really a simple telling of a story of, of how God encountered me. And that's really all it was, but he did something beautiful in that, I think. Yeah, it was honestly like we were all like, oh, this is great. You could like feel it. <laughs> and everyone there was just they were very and it's good, like kind of going back to the feminine genius thing. I think it's good to have that moment where you like allow God to like just to be open to him. It's like, what does mm. what does God want me to receive in a way to remember that, like, we're called to, you know, like, to be his church and to like, I don't know. I just think it's I think it's really important. Anyways. Mm. Yeah, big gulps, we huh? are. Big gulps. <laughs> so big gulps, huh? Do you got anything cool coming up that you want to plug? Anything? Um, no, we got we got season two of our our abiding together podcast, which is always fun. Excellent. So we, you guys are two dudes, and we're like three ladies. So you know, who is it? Who's on there with you? Uh, Michelle Bensinger and Heather Kim. And so I'm, Michelle and Chris Bensinger were involved in Life Teen for a long time, and then Heather and Jake Kim, they're in Canada, and Jake's a marriage and family therapist and Heather does music ministry. She's a very gifted musician. And so they both went to Steubenville together. And then, um, now we do a podcast together and they're wonderful. So it's called abiding together. So we have a good time. Um, My, uh, my wife, my wife went with, uh, Michelle. uh, Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's why we don't know them. Okay. (laughs) Well, I know Michelle Benzinger from, uh, life team and all the years she was at Covecrest. Mm. Do, do I, do I know where Gomer? I'm bad with that stuff. So nope. Nope. She went because <laughs> like, you never went to Covecrest, and that's where sure. her and her husband were, or her whole family was most involved. And now they're yeah. in, they're in Tallahassee, right? Or did they're they in Pensacola. Pensacola. They're in the diocese. Yeah, in the diocese, but they technically live in Pensacola. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. So they're doing great work for the church. Both of them. It's just inspiring, you know. So the last time I saw her, you guys were at the convocation, and I was in Alabama at this group meeting of Catholic evangelists. And, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Nice. Also, cool. sister, uh, thank you for following me on Twitter. I've really cleaned up my act since then. <laughs> <laughs> Not even, it's always in the back of my mind. So thank Whatever, you. I really dude. appreciate you, that. <laughs> you guys, you be you. I just love it. I laugh out loud listening to your podcast at times. And there's been so many times I'm like, I want to share that episode. I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> see? 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 That's the problem. But I... See, I've got like the nun folk, but I, I love listening to you guys. So you, you just seriously make my day. I just like laugh a lot. I laugh a lot. <laughs> that was my favorite thing of hanging out with Gomer at Steubenville, St. Louis. I really have to say that like one of my favorite things is to laugh. And when I spent time with him, it was like for like Father Martin or like Father Chris Martin and who else like Paul Kim. But yeah. we laughed like Steve Angersano. We laughed the whole weekend. 
And that was one of the highlights of just my stomach actually hurt. I'm like, man, I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. And it's such a gift. I think laughter is such a gift. And I just, so I just want to say thanks to you, Michael, for that. It was really, it was, it's a happy memory in my life. Just like listening (laughs) to you guys and just laughing. Well, that was such, to me, all that was me being on edge to the extreme because my (laughs) father-in-law and my sister-in-law were in the crowd during Steubenville, St. Louis, because they're from St. Louis. And so I was just scared the whole time. And I'm like, oh. that's that, like, nervous energy that I get that, like, literally the first night, I think I got, like, three hours of sleep because I was like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, gosh, oh, no. It was, I can't, <laughs> I can't turn that off. Ugh. It's hard for all of us, isn't it? Those are nerve-wracking events at times, I think, you know, so. Yeah. You know what they say, we're all so broken. It's so true. Broken. I've heard that. I wonder if I feel like I heard that somewhere. Yeah, anyway. I don't know. I don't know. That's why we go to the club and our tight habits, you know. So you can take the girl out of the club, can't take the club out of the girl. <laughs> this gray habit is gonna spin so fast on that dance floor, you ain't gonna know what hits you. What did hit you is the cord that's a rosary right in the eyeball. Watch out. <laughs> it is very well known to like all like that um all nuns like daft punk so <laughs> around the world around the world <laughs> oh this is this is where you really want to go to sleep but we keep talking <laughs> and we prevent you to <laughs> so we will we will definitively end it and say thank you and i want to make just two quick comments number okay. one um cory hyman just released the book called created it's an mm. ebook. It's meant to be given away for free for those who go to likableart.com. But what he did was he reached out to, I think, 60 artists, and we use the term loosely because I'm involved, um, 60 artists in order to get them to write a paragraph on their form of art and connecting it to God. And uh, Dr. Peter Kraft is on there. Bishop Barron is on there. Um, and, of course, yours truly, Michael Gormley. Good for you. I'm super excited to be on it. So there's that. So fund the Kickstarter. Uh, it's called Created Connecting. Oh, man. Created. Corey Hyman. Look that up. And then uh, the last thing is the Encounter Conference. Starts this weekend. Luke is flying down tomorrow. I'm picking him up or an Uber will drive him up here. And then Luke's coming to class with me. Oh, sorry, Luke. That's fine. fine. I'm just going to make a comment in the back. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. <laughs> you call that a haircut, fatty? <laughs> yeah. I don't, Luke. I don't. <laughs> I knew I shouldn't have cut it myself. Uh, <laughs> Talk about antiwar.com, you nerd. <laughs> oh, this is how we keep Sister up late. Bye, That's Sister. Hard. Thank I'm you sorry. so much. Thank you so uh, much. God bless you, too. I'm praying for you guys. Thank you, you so much. You it's need been delightful. To. You Thank need you. to pray for us, especially Luke. He's not doing so well. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm doing it again. All righty. Uh, uh, <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. my church it's ugly this is my wife she's pretty in fact she's so pretty we made more of us that's what i do i make stuff but every time i make something i can't help to wonder why bother to figure it out let's go back nope further nope even further there we go the beginning first five words of the bible in the beginning god created 
It's the first thing he did. And if that's true, every time that we create, we're sharing in that first thing that he did. So it should be beautiful. So yeah, sometimes we see this and this and this, but there are people out there doing this and this and this and this and well and this. When I see great work, I want to know how the heck did they do that? How do they take their ideas and share it with me in a way that moves me to my core? So I decided to go to those people and I asked them, if you could tell your fellow artists, makers, creators, and tinkers anything, what are your first five words? This is created. Over 50 artists, authors, filmmakers, designers, architects, chefs, and other makers. On the left side, they share their five words in a beautiful way. And on the right side, they break that down for about 300 words or less. I love this book, and I'm sure you'll like it. If you don't like it, you're probably the kind of person that doesn't like chocolate pudding and dancing toddlers. You monster. So buy one or buy a bunch. Buy them with a pack of prints or a pack of notebooks to keep all your ideas. It makes a great gift for anybody trying to bridge the gap between their art and their creator. We've been working with a printer in Illinois, and we look forward to delivering before Christmas. Oh, and those dancing toddlers. Listen. Listen. 